title this morning out of Job 33 to 37, or even 32 to 37, is You Forget Yourself. Think of maybe in a high society setting. I, I, I imagine this in a British setting, though I'm not even going to attempt the accent. But somebody is, is um, they're, they're, they're in, a, in a particular social setting and they're criticizing or they're complaining and they're, they don't really have the right to do that. They're not in the right position that they should be critiquing or complaining. You know, we're in a very egalitarian society in the sense of um, Americans decided we would not have a king. Not every other culture in the world is that way. But we, we are very free to, to, to criticize and to op- give our opinion about uh, our elected officials and so forth. But in other places in the world, that may just not be the appropriate thing to do. In some places in the world, that might be a very dangerous thing to do. And I imagine in a setting like that, somebody is critiquing or complaining or grumbling about, and somebody will say, sir, you forget yourself. You forget who you are compared to who they are. Well, some of that is in the book of Job. And I think that's what we come to in this setting, that Job has indeed, in the midst of the pressure upon him, and I want to give Job a lot of grace. I'm not finding fault with Job. Job, in the midst of his grief and suffering and grave loss, it is easy in those situations. He shows us this. A man so well spoken of by God himself, it is easy to forget ourselves. It is easy to forget our God in the midst of those pressures upon our heart and upon our soul. And that's what Elihu is able to speak to, this fourth friend. After the others have had their say and they've got nothing more to say, Elihu comes along. And we get introduced to him, and we learn there, first of all, there's a time to speak up in chapter 32. That certainly trusting God is better than arguing with God. Chapters 33 to 35 There's some things in there that we dare not forget. And then we are not yet at the end of the story. The final two chapters, 36 and 37, we are not yet at the end of the story. So, let's get into the book of Job from chapter 32. I'm not going to read those those five or six chapters. We want to, this is a wisdom book, and what I want to do this morning is I want to dip in here and here. I want to give you an overall framework that you can take away from this section, and uh, from there, when you go and read through the whole chapters again, I think they'll make a little bit more sense, and more of this will, will come to the surface for you. So we'll point to verses along the way as we go. Job, you forget yourself. Trusting God when there's more than I can see. It reminds me of the time I discovered I needed to wear glasses. Now, I can see without my glasses. I can see Ryan and Pam all the way there in the back of the room. I see John and Bev all the way on the back row, Jim Davis next to him. I can see you. And when you don't have glasses, you don't know any better. Um, I don't, I, I remember I was in the Air Force, I was teaching, and in the midst of teaching, well, I gave something for the class to work on, and so then I'm wandering around, and I, I'm going around the back of the classroom, and 
There was in the back row, there was a, a student who'd been in the Air Force for several years. He was retraining, so not one of the new entries in their initial school, but he was retraining into a new job, and, and he, was, he was part of my class. And, and we had a bit of a, of a rapport going on, and uh, I, I, I made a comment to him. I said, oh, I didn't realize it was so hard to see from back here what was up on the screen in the front of the room. And he, he making a joke, oh, do you want to try my glasses? And so me, making a joke, said, yeah, and I put them on, and it was like, oh, wow. I didn't know you were supposed to see like that. I mean, I could recognize Ryan and Pam and John and Bev, but I didn't know I was supposed to know, be able to tell if they were smiling or frowning. I didn't know that I was supposed to be able to tell if Tom's eyes were open or if they were closed. When you, when you get used to only seeing so well, you don't know you're supposed to be able to see more clearly than that. We don't know what we don't see. That's the point. God is certainly doing more than we can see, just like the parents are doing more than the children know. And am I willing to trust him for more than I can see? Because the, the little bit that I can see, it doesn't make sense. This is not right. And often, what you would declare to God, God, this is not right, God would agree with you. It's not right, my child. But there's more that we don't see that God is doing in the midst of that which is not right. And for that, we must trust him. You see, it's when we focus instead on the near, the circumstances, myopia, nearsightedness. When we focus on what is near, complaining about life, complaining about others, we are more easily able to, in fact, we are almost enticed into overlooking ourselves. We forget ourselves. So in chapter 32, we meet Elihu. Elihu is younger than the others, these who he deferred to as elders. This was a serious situation. What did he know? This was a time to let the graybeard speak. And so Elihu does that. Look at chapter, or chapter 32 and verse 6. Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am younger in years, and you are aged. Therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak. Let many years teach wisdom, those who are older. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not merely years that give wisdom. Again, in the Air Force, I remember one time a colonel posed the question to um, a bunch of us in a room together. And he said, you may say that you have five or ten years of experience, but do you have ten years of experience in, in an area, or do you have one or two years of experience, five or ten times. You see, that can be true in the Christian life as well. Oh, I've been a Christian for many, many years. Yes, and have, do you have 30 years of growth in those 30 years? Or do you have two years of growth 15 times over? Wisdom is not automatic with age. 
Wisdom comes from the Almighty and from His Spirit within us. And as Elihu has been listening, he's realized these older men that he too trusted in have have missed the point here. They have not answered Job well, and they've left Job not answering God well. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger, and he burned with anger at Job, first of all, because Job is focused on himself. Job justified himself rather than God. In in being quite sure that he is right, he has forgotten that God is righter. God must be true. He's forgotten that. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, though they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Even with the wisdom of their years, they have just assumed, according to our model, Job must be wrong. And they've missed it. And by jumping to their easy conclusion that got them off the hook, they have not served Job well. They have not helped redirect Job's gaze off of himself and back to God. That's what Job needed. And they have not helped him. And they should have. And so that's got him ticked off. And it has boiled up within him, we read in like verses 18 to 20, full of words, the spirit within me constrains me. My belly is like wine that has no vent. It is just boiling up in him. I must speak that I may find relief. He's got to say something. He's got to say something. He doesn't want to speak out of turn, so he spends the first chapter apologizing for speaking up, but he must. Sometimes you need to say something. And, and he is doing it with humility here. When you must speak into somebody's life, do it with humility. Do it graciously, but don't be afraid to speak. Don't be afraid. What does Job tell us? The core of his message The core of his message that he tells Job and his friends, and he speaks mostly to Job, is in chapters 33 through 35. And it's basically this. Trusting God is better than arguing with God. Now, quite simply, God never loses an argument. Okay? So trusting God is going to be better than arguing with God. We don't know, we don't know, we don't know, we don't yet see, we don't know what we're missing. We do know, oh, on the cross, there it was seen. Oh, I can have no doubt that he loves me, no matter what these circumstances would suggest. And how the enemy would use them to lie to me about God, but God has already shown me definitively that I can trust him. Trusting God is better than arguing with God. But first of all, in order to approach this, and so what I'm going to do, I'm going to, we're going to dip into just verses here and there in chapters 33 to 35 and then the following couple of chapters. First of all, he had listened to, he had heard Job's complaint. Look at verses 8 to 11 of chapter 33. I have spoken in my ears. I have heard the sound No, sorry, Job, you have spoken into my ears. I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he, God, finds occasion within me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. God's got it out for me and I've done nothing wrong. Job, I hear you. He restates back to Job what Job's complaint 
is first. Oh, that we would be quick to hear and slow to speak. We have two ears. We have one mouth. If we would only use them on that ratio, listen more than we declare. He's slow to speak. What does he know? He doesn't assume that he knows it all. And he, the first step in giving an answer is letting, not, well, the first step is hearing genuinely. The second step that goes with that is letting them know, I've heard you. Oh, such a practical thing here. Husbands and wives, one of the things we go over. Do you remember this years ago, Charlie and Audrey? They were, I think, the first couple that I did premarital prep here with in the church. You're still sweet to me for that. Do you remember we talked about reflective listening? Say yes, whether you remember it or not. Say yes. Yes, we remember that. And, 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 and reflecting back that which you heard your, your spouse say. And, and if you didn't get it right, well, you, you learn. No, that, 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 that's kind of what I was saying. But what I really was trying to say, and, and, and it goes back and forth and, until you get it right. And they know they've been heard. And only when you know you've really heard them right. We sometimes focus on the words, and boy, you can find fault with people's words. You'll find fault with my words this morning. I will say something carelessly. Something will get out. I'll use the wrong, whatever. You can, you, you can pick, pick faults with my words, with your spouse's words, with anybody's words. But have you really heard them? That's the point. That, the answer is not needed merely to the words. The answer is needed to what, where the words came from. It's, it's, it's one thing to say, what did they say? It's another thing to ask, why did they say that? What's behind that? Job's been heard, first of all. His friend took the time to hurt him, and yet now he can confront him. Behold, verse 12, what you say is not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two though man does not perceive it. Another thing we learn here, God is speaking and working even though Job does not perceive it. My lack of hearing doesn't mean God is not speaking. You want to have some fun with me? You want to get me distracted and wrapped around the axle a little bit? Well, in the midst of a conversation, do this. Say, well, it seems to me that what God is trying to say is, then carry on, and I'm not even probably going to hear anything more you say. I'm going to be stuck on what God is trying to say because God is not trying to say anything. God is saying it very well. We are the ones that are trying to hear. We are the ones that are trying to understand what God has said and what God is saying. God is saying it well. We just don't hear it so well. We don't understand it so well. Now, you can certainly say, I think what Bob is trying to say is, but God, God is not, God, God is not merely trying to say anything. God is saying. God has said. But we don't always hear it right. What I am trying to hear, what I am trying to understand. God is speaking even when we don't perceive it. God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. Something else we learn in chapter 33 is that God's purposes are always merciful restoration through his mediator. Look at chapter 33, verses 16 to 18. 
Chapter 33, is that chapter 34? Where am I going here? Ah, jumping ahead of myself. Verses 22 and 28. 22 to 28. Chapter 33, verse 22 to 28. His soul draws near to the pit. Speaking of man and the, 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 the troubles of life. His life to those who bring death. If, if there be for him an angel, if there was only a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him, God is merciful to man and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, for I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh again with youth. You remember Job's boils? Remember the suffering in his skin and the intense pain? But let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him and he sees his face with a shout of joy. Man sees God's faith with joy, not shame. He restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and I twisted what was right. And it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed me, redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. This is all going to be Job's own experience. Elihu is declaring that God works this way. Nobody knows yet that this is actually what God is going to do for Job as well. That even when Job prays, that's when God restores him at the end of the book. That Job's flesh is restored. That Job himself said, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand on the earth. And God says, yes, Job, there is a mediator. There is one who has paid the ransom for you. We have a Redeemer. His name is Jesus. We have one who has has paid the cost for our sin. We are not left to our own. We are not entrapped in a retribution principle that I am going to, to reap what I have sown, that my guilt is going to be required of me. No, it was required of Jesus, and he paid it all. And there is a mediator, and God's purposes are towards merciful restoration. As he's going to do with Job, so will be our experience as well. Job does not die here. Some who are the Lord's do in suffering, in oppression, in persecution. But though they die, they do not die. The one who believes on me, Jesus says, has everlasting life will not come into condemnation, but has already passed from death into life. That's why he says of Lazarus, tucked away in the tomb, we need to go and wake him up. Because he hasn't died. He's not been separated from God, and he never will be. And neither do you who believe in Jesus, who trust in him. God's purposes are toward merciful restoration, and he does this patiently with us over and over again. Look at verses 29 and 30 of chapter 33. Behold, God does all these things, this restoration, this, this, this um, lifting us back up. God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Yeah, maybe I did stumble. Maybe I went too far. Maybe I accused God. And yet he will forgive me. 
yet he will restore me. Maybe I have grumbled, and God will let it go. He tells us to forgive. Peter says, should I forgive seven times? And the Lord says, no, 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 how about let's start with 70 times seven. And you, you, you run up the count there, come back, we'll talk more. If God tells us to, to forgive 70 times seven, do you think he would forgive you any less? Would he forgive one near to you any less? God does not expect us to be more forgiving than he. No, we are to forgive as we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. So, we can count on him. In his merciful restoration, God's purposes are always merciful restoration through his mediator. The difference with Elihu in this whole conversation is Elihu does not assume that Job has sinned. He reminds Job that God works for mercy even when he allows trouble. There may be trouble to come, and Elihu doesn't know. Maybe Job's got some secrets. Maybe he doesn't. Elihu doesn't know, and Elihu dares not assume that. That's the difference between him and the other three. We spoke before about don't, don't assume what you don't know. Work with confession when it comes, certainly, and, and help restore such a one in a, in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself in humility, lest you also be tempted, perhaps by pride and judgmental condemnation of others. But Elihu doesn't jump to that conclusion. Elihu, the big difference here is Job's looking at himself. Job's friends were assuming things about Job. Elihu is telling Job to instead look at God. Remember I said before, it's not about why. It's often not about what. The root issue here is about who. Who can I trust? Even when I don't understand, even when I cannot see, I can trust God. In chapter 34, verses 4 to 9, Job forgets his faith when he's complaining instead of trusting. 34, verse, five, verse 4. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I'm in the right, that God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I'm counted as wrong. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. And Elihu's conclusion is, what man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers, who walks with wicked men, for he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Job's formula is wrong. Job's doing the math wrong. And when he shows his work, the error is obvious that Job's looking only at the immediate circumstances and God is looking at a much longer view and a much higher view. And Job knows nothing about what's going on in heaven. Job knows nothing about what's going on in Brush Prairie this morning. That you are sitting in the midst of trouble or worry or concern or injustice and you're wondering why and you're reminded by Job's story, golly, at least, probably 3,800, 4,000 years earlier, and you're still reminded of it that I can trust God. Job doesn't know any of that's happening. Job says, as I pointed out somewhat humorously, oh, that my words were written in a book. They were, and God planned that all along. You see, we don't know what we don't know, but we know we can trust him. That's the thing. 
Job has wandered off by focusing on himself instead of God. Job has wandered into the kind of thinking that those that don't believe God go to. Oh, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help me to trust you. Lord, I do trust you. Help me then in my not trusting you. Job forgets his faith. He's complaining then instead of trusting. When you're complaining, it's not fair. When you're complaining, you're not trusting. If you were trusting, I don't know what it is. I don't get it, but God's in it. I will trust him. When you're trusting, you're not complaining. When you're complaining, you're not trusting. So the next, try that out. Next time you hear yourself complaining, say, wait, 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 wait. What am I not trusting God for here? That's the answer to it. The complaining really doesn't help anyway. It just makes you more upset. What am I not trusting for God that's caused God for that's causing me then, leading me into complaint instead? Don't forget yourself. In your complaining, who are you? Who am I to judge God as right or wrong? Oh, that's a brazenness, isn't it? Sir, the mirror says back to me, you forget yourself. Who do I think I am that I'm going to pass judgment on if God is running his universe rightly or not? That was the insinuation of Satan in chapter 1, that God is not running his universe right. I'm not going to join that chorus. How dare I complain against God? God is a good and sovereign judge who knows everything and runs his universe well. Look at chapter 34, verse 21. For God's eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness. I drove home last night from the coast in the dark, and it's always a little dicier driving in the dark like that. I was glad it was raining, wasn't raining because that makes it even worse. And the glare and the darkness, and then the deer runs in the road, and you toast. I'm glad that didn't happen. But I don't see it all. But God does. There's no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Wait a minute, wait a minute. God judges without investigating? That doesn't seem right. God does not need to verify or validate his facts because God knows exactly what is. God does not need a grand jury to determine if charges should be brought because God knows perfectly. God is the only one in the universe who is fully qualified to be prosecutor, judge, and jury. And yet he has chosen to be for you your advocate in Jesus. He's also chosen to be that against the one you're complaining against. So be careful. We easily forget ourselves. We forget our, 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 our own faith in our complaint against him. We forget God, that God is a good and just sovereign. And we find ourselves then arguing with God as if God were the one who was missing something. Look at verses 34 to 36 of that same chapter. Men of understanding will say to me, the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job 
We're tried to the end because he answers like a wicked man. Job's not a wicked man, but he's starting to sound like an unbeliever. He adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. Arguing with God, you're always going to be missing something. God may not answer you in your argument with him, but God has never lost an argument. He may not answer you, but he's never lost an argument. Instead, we need, to, we need to be careful. We need to be careful in our assumptions that we don't turn our understanding of God's blessing into a transactional kind of entitlement. That I ought to be treated this way. If I, if I have served God faithfully, God should bless me. I have earned my pay. I am, in fact, in it for the bennies, just like Satan said. God's primary purpose is not retribution for behavior modification. Oh boy, that ought to shake up a Baptist church. God's primary purpose is not retribution for behavior modification. No, God's purpose is to grow you up into the likeness of Jesus, as we have no way to ourselves. But he is transforming us from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, into the same image by his Spirit. God's not paying us off for good behavior. God's not doling out an allowance depending on how many chores we completed on the chart. That's not it at all. That's a way to start with children. That is not a way to grow them to maturity. And God is not growing us that way. In fact, he leads us sometimes into suffering. Sometimes wrongful suffering. That's exactly where he led his son who trusted him and said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And God will sometimes even lead us into the place of hardship and suffering so that we can arrive there because there is the, is the golden point of our growth when, when it's wrong, it's not right, and I don't see why. And yet I can say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's where he does his work in us. Imagine if we punished or rewarded our child based only on their, how their behavior benefits or embarrasses us in the eyes of others. That'd be a terribly selfish way to raise our children, wouldn't it? God does not raise his that way. God raises his for our best in mind, not his best. His greatest delight is in you walking with him. These three lessons, don't forget our need then for God's mercy. Let the enemy's evil, the brokenness of sin, let these things remind you that God gives mercy where we need it. Let us then come boldly before the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. That's God's priority. Don't forget yourself, who am I to question the creator? God himself will remind Job of that. A young child, when a parent is showing how, have you ever had a young child tell you, no, no, no that's not the way to do it, as if they knew? <laughs> or teens, I love this in the teen years. Mom, Dad, you wouldn't understand, like you were never a teen. Really? 
I was born at 20 or 40, really? We do that with God. God, you wouldn't understand. He sent his own son into this humanity where he was tempted in all things as we are. Oh, yeah, God gets it. God does know. Don't forget yourself. Who am I to question my creator? Don't forget God. The enemy will lie to you about who God is. That began in Genesis 3. Oh, no, no, no. God's withholding from you. God knows that it could be really great for you, and he's holding that back because he, he just wants you to be dependent on him. No, God knows you are dependent on him, and he knows you need to know it too. That's the thing. The enemy is lying, has been lying about God to you from the beginning, and it continues to this day. Don't forget God. One more thing that we should remember that we, emerges for us in chapters 36 and 37. God does not consider Job or you and I unimportant. Look at chapter 36, verses 5 and 6. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength and understanding. He does not keep, he does not keep the wicked alive. Opposite, he keeps his own alive. And he gives the afflicted their right. He will. Make it right. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. When we were in our, mornings, our, our Monday morning study this last week, and as we were reading through, and we got to that verse, he does not keep the wicked alive, somebody said, oh, did you see it? Did you have that moment? God does not keep the wicked alive, but God has kept Job alive. Oh, it's miserable, but God drew the line, and God said, and God is sovereign. He's the one in, try, in, in, in charge, and he said to Satan, okay, you go ahead and touch him, but you may not take his life. God is still sovereignly keeping Job, and even in a, in a suffering or persecution where one faithful to the Lord does lose their life unjustly and wrongly still, no, no, this one is mine. He will be with me forever. He keeps his own, and Job's life is not insignificant to him, and neither is yours. In fact, his delight is in you. We are not yet at the end of the story. This present affliction is not the final word. God does at times use affliction to correct, even to instruct us in verses 10 and 11. He opens their ear to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. They listen and serve him. They complete their days in prosperity. Sometimes trouble comes to redirect us. Hebrews 12 says, yes, he does discipline those whom he loves and receives. That might be it. Don't assume that's it, but that might be it. But this is not the end of the story. The end of the story is whom he receives. The end of the story is he restores. God uses affliction also to draw our heart to things that matter more. Look at verses 15 and 16. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. He opens their ears by adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. He draws you out to a better place and to a greater abundance in his prosperity. There's a, there's a line that is echoed in the Jewish Passover Haggadah. 
the, the, it's kind of the liturgy that they use for every Passover each year. And part of it is it would, be, it would have been enough if, it would have been enough if. If you just lightened our load a little bit of Egypt, that would have been enough. If you just given us a little more food to eat, that would have been enough. If you just made the straw easier to gather and the bricks not quite as heavy, that would have been enough. It kind of goes on like that. And the point of it is... We don't know our full need, and we would be satisfied with far less than God intends for us. It would be enough, we think, but God will never allow you to be satisfied. If I could only have the American dream, and if it could only be that we had a nice home, and the car wasn't broken down, and the kids weren't sick, and we weren't worried about this in the future, if we could only have that, God, that would be enough. No. The American dream is not God's dream for us. God's intention for us is far better and bigger and greater and more expansive and full of fatness, it said, than that. God intends far more for us than we realize. And he will even use affliction to realize that this isn't good enough, that only he can satisfy that's where he's taken us. We are not yet at the end of the story. This is not enough. And God's sovereignty over his creation shows his ways and how they are beyond our perception. Chapter 37, verses 11 to 16. But let me just read verse 13. Chapter 37 and verse 13. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. God is doing things in our lives and we don't always understand the why. It might be for correction. It might be just an aspect of his faithful working in the midst of a world that is broken and would spin completely out of control without God's steadying hand. It might be for simply his love and a better purpose that he has that we are in the midst of this hardship we don't know why but we can trust him he causes it to happen for correction for his for his land and his covenant faithfulness or for his love god is doing it we don't see it yet because we are not yet at the end of the story so we get to verse 23 and 24 of chapter 37 the almighty we cannot find him he is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness, he will not violate. I can trust him. Therefore, men fear him. We revere him. We honor him. We will not forget him. We will look to him instead of ourselves. We will seek God's perspective and his future rather than, rather than our opinion of our present. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. And so then I will trust in the Lord with all my heart. I will not lean on my own understanding. In all of my ways, where they are comfortable or miserable, I will acknowledge Him and I will trust Him to direct my paths. Let's pray. Father, we do trust You. We do trust you. So Lord, would you help us to trust you more? Those who have trusted you for life with you forever because of Jesus. The Lord, if we trust you for life forever, would you help us to trust you today?
in this moment? Father, we confess that sometimes we do not believe. So, Lord, help us in our not trusting. Lift our gaze from our troubles and circumstances. Not that we pretend they're not, but, Father, lift our gaze from there to see those in light of who you are and who you are for us in your mercy and in your restoration, not merely for this life, but for eternity. Help us trust you. We ask it in Jesus' name, the one who is the object of our trust and our hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen.